If you would, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. Today we are going to be reading verses 13 through verses 17. And this is the story or the moment where Jesus calls Levi, also known as Matthew, also known as the guy who wrote Matthew, uh, the first gospel. We're going to read and discuss. There is a lot packed into these few verses. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And he reclined at table in his house. Many, and as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Lord, we ask that you would bless the reading of your word, and we ask that you would help us to hear what the Spirit's saying through your word today. God, I ask that you would help me to speak clearly what I should. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, first thing, let's, let's get our minds wrapped around the setting where Jesus is and what's going on. He's, uh, he was at the house outside the synagogue, which we believe to be Peter's house, which we believe that's where P, uh, Jesus stayed. Now he went out, so he leaves that crowded scenario where they let down the paralytic, and that's what we talked about last week, through the roof, Massive healing, had that confrontation with the scribes and the Pharisees. People are again proclaiming his fame. And Jesus does again what he's done earlier. He leaves that scene and now he's out by the sea. And the crowd follows him. So that is, that's going to happen all throughout Jesus' ministry. The crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. So now he's back out by the sea and teaching. I got to imagine this was a just a, kind of a beautiful setting. So it wasn't like I could definitely take a vacation to go to the Sea of Capernaum and listen to Jesus teaching. That sounds like an excellent summer vacation, but it was because of the power of his teaching and the power demonstrated in his ministry, people are drawn to him like a magnet. Now not always for the right reason. A lot of what's happening, as you see throughout the gospel, is they are interested in the show. They are not interested in the teaching as much. The show is always more fascinating and interesting. Seeing demons come out, seeing lepers healed, seeing blind people healed, the show is always more interesting. Now, I'm not being disrespectful by saying that. I'm trying to get inside the head of the people that were there and the way that they were thinking, because it's not a show. This is Jesus demonstrating who he is as the Messiah. But here he's just teaching, and they're coming out to hear what he has to say, and 
He's already, it's already been established that he taught as one who had authority. So people were really listening to Jesus and, and what he had to say. And in the middle of this, out by the sea, he passes by and sees Levi, or Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And Jesus looks at him and he says, follow me. And he followed him. So let's talk about Matthew and let's talk about tax collectors. And I know you've heard some of this before, but let's, let's go ahead and talk about the fact that his tax booth is out there by the sea. So what we know about Matthew and what we know about tax collectors, what we think we know is happening here, is that the way that the taxes may have been paid in this particular area was the taxing of the fishermen with the product that they had, which was fish. And so it's like an excise or a custom tax or a toll, so to speak. And so Matthew has set up his shop as a tax collector right there on the sea, and he is taxing the fishermen, which tells us what? He probably knows Peter, Andrew, James, and John. He has probably taxed them lovingly and mercifully tax them uh, for, the, uh, for the oppressing overlords of Rome. And that is something important to understand. If you were a Jew and you became a tax collector, you were hated and ostracized by society. You were not allowed to serve in any Jewish courts. You weren't allowed to be involved in the synagogue. In fact, you weren't allowed to, in essence, you weren't allowed to come to church. If you decided to be a tax collector, you were kicked out of the Jewish assembly. You weren't allowed to, to hang out with anybody. The Pharisees viewed you and the rest of the culture viewed you as a Benedict Arnold, as a betrayer of your people. And that is what you were because the way that these guys got their paycheck was let's say the taxation was 40% of what you brought in, but Matthew, the tax collector, collects 60%. That means he's keeping 20% for himself or whatever margin he wants to uh, increase the tax by. That's how these guys got paid. And you could do nothing about it. And it was arbitrary. It was subjective. It wasn't set I'm not going to say that our tax code is not arbitrary and subjective, uh, because uh, because it is. Um, there, it is a wildly complex system. Uh, however, um, those guys were totally in control of how much they charged. So they were hated, they were despised, and they were rich. But they got rich off of oppressing everybody else. So let's think then what this would have felt like for Jesus to specifically call a tax collector to be his disciple. He's only got four at this point. He's got Peter and Andrew. He's got James and John, all four of which are fishermen, that this guy was taxing. You guys, you getting, you getting the picture? Because... In normal team-building exercises in corporate America, you would not hire somebody to come into the team unit that is despised by everybody else on the team. And yet that is exactly what Jesus did. 
Not only would you not do that, normally you would, as a rabbi and teacher, despise a tax collector, more so even than the average guy that was being abused by the tax collector because the Pharisees um, really despised tax collectors because of their association with Rome and with their betrayal of the Jewish people. Something, something else that's uh, in here that's really interesting, when Jesus simply says, follow me, and he rose and followed him, you've you got to think about what that is really saying. That, that's Jesus walking into your work. Phil is running an x-ray machine at work. And Jesus comes walking in and says, follow me, which means quit your job and come follow me. And he does it right now. The, if you read this account in Luke, and this was clearly an important thing, Luke's got it in there as well. In Luke, it says he left everything and followed Jesus. Instantaneously left everything. What do, what do you get out of that? That when Jesus approaches people and says, follow me, there's, there is a spiritual power at work that rearranges the motivations and the hearts of people. And that is what happened to Matthew. He hears the call of Jesus. He responds instantaneously. He says, yes, I will follow you. It doesn't tell us what Peter, James, John, and Andrew's reaction were. We can speculate that they were probably unhappy. We don't know. It doesn't say. But I just, you can imagine, if you've watched the Chosen series, how many of you have watched some of that? You know what I'm talking about. You watch, you, you, some of that is portrayed in there, um, and they take a lot of poetic license in uh, Chosen, but they, they, I think they do a good job on that particular element of speculation that these guys probably had some serious conflict. Now, Matthew is so excited, and the account in Luke, if you read it out of Luke chapter 5, the account in Luke tells us that Matthew gathers some people together, throws a party, but Matthew only knows one kind of people, his own people, which are tax collectors. That's the only kind of folks that Matthew knows. So look at uh, verse uh, 15. And as he, we're talking about Jesus, reclined at table in his house, Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So this is a the only kind of party of celebration that Matthew can have is one with people he knows to invite, plus the people that Jesus brings with him. And this crowd is a motley crew, according to the Jewish standards, of tax collectors and sinners. Now, I learned some stuff this week trying to study for this and uh, learned a little bit about what's going on when you see the word sinners here. It's, it's really a description of what they call just the common people of the day. Just tax collectors and sinners, they are people that are going about their lives, they're Jewish, but they're not overly concerned with living by every minute detail. So, so get your mind around the culture. You have Pharisees and scribes 
who several hundred years er earlier had kind of come up in uh, that intertestament period between Malachi and Matthew. There's 430 some years. The Pharisees spring up out of there over concern that people are not following the law. So you get these new zealous guys that start really demanding serious adherence to the law. Because there are no Pharisees in the Old Testament. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but they don't exist in the Old Testament. They, they, they spring up in between Malachi and Matthew, and they are people that actually have a really good start and intention, and a lot of movements do. The intention is we want to get people serious about God again. It's just that what they wind up creating is this system, instead of just the Ten Commandments and, and Torah, they wind up with 613 commandments. Have you heard this before? In the Mishnah and the Talmud, these are, these are Jewish commentaries on how you're supposed to live the law. And some of the, the Mishnah and the Talmud are actually really good practical ways that you can live your life as a Jew and do it pleasing to the Lord. But some of the commandments are burdensome and crazy and silly. And that's why people get called sinners. Because they can't live up to the 613 laws. Just so you know, there's 365 don'ts, and there's 248 do's. And I just want to ask you if you think you would do very well with that. 300, we've got a don't for every day of the year. 365 don'ts and 248 do's. Now, I brought that up because it says that Jesus was reclining at table with them. This is not the same thing as us saying, would you like to grab a quick bite to eat? How many of you have said that before at lunch, at work, or something? Let's get a quick bite to eat. It's like a 20-minute, 30-minute thing, or maybe a little longer, just a, you do that, you've done that with acquaintances, you've done that with other people. That's not what this is. When you are reclining at table, it means that you've got a much larger feast, it's going to last much longer than a regular meal, and there is a certain familial, intimate, we know each other, and I am here with you element. And so this was forbidden in the 613 laws of the Pharisees and scribes. The idea that Jesus would be hanging out with tax collectors and common sinners, unbelievably wrong for him to be doing that. You should not be here, Jesus. You are not following our man-made rules is what's, what's happening. I want to read you, I've been using this commentary by um, William Lane, it's really, really good. I want to read you some of the Mishnah provisions that he mentions in here and why the scribes are upset that Jesus is that reclining at the table. He that undertakes to be trustworthy, a.k.a. a Pharisee, may not be the guest of one of the people of the land. Sinners, common folk, people with dirt under their fingernails, people who don't follow this law correctly. You will not be a guest of one of their homes. Here's another one. 
he who undertakes to be an associate may not be the guest of one of the people of the land, common folk sinners, nor may he receive him as a guest in his own raiment. Here's another one. There's a list among six things inappropriate for a scholar, and Jesus would have been considered that. He should not recline at table in the company of ignorant persons. Let not a Pharisee eat the sacrifices with the people of the land. The idea that the Pharisees had is not all that different. Here's where we have some understanding of what's in the Pharisaical mind. In the mind of the Pharisee, the idea was holiness equals separation, which is kind of true. The Bible does say, come out from among them and be separate. Okay? That's true. But the Pharisees take this to a new level and say, Rob is not separate enough, and Rob is a fellow believer. But he's not good enough. He's a person of the land. He's a common man. He's common. He's, he's not serious like I am. So I'm going to create a new set of rules to separate myself from this guy. And as time goes on, they get more and more, as all legalism does, they get more and more refined in how separate they are. There were Pharisees bragging that if a guy leaned against a tree that was unclean in any capacity, he would not go near the tree by at least 50 yards. Oh yeah? Well, I'm not going to go near that tree by a hundred yards. You see how legalism works? And what value is that really? About this much. Zero. But it makes you feel pious and superior to all you ignorant people that don't get how holy I truly am. And that is... So the Pharisees start as this movement to return to the Word of God, and it turns into fundamentalist King James only, Bible-believing, devil-stomping, don't talk to nobody but us, us four, no more people. I'm, I'm using that because in the Bible Belt, we have people who do something really similar, and they just, it's us four and no more, and, uh, and we don't want anybody else in, and I'm kind of hoping that you sinners go to hell, uh, because that'll prove how right I am. And uh, I have zero love and zero compassion and zero mercy. And uh, I, I am separate. And I've never seen a rated PG movie. And I've never listened to a secular song. And I've never ever done this. And I've never ever done that. I don't smoke and I don't cuss and I don't drink. And I don't go with girls who do. And all the stuff you've heard all of your life, right? Is anybody familiar with fundamentalism? Now, there's some elements in there that are true. I mean, your life shouldn't be filled with drinking and smoking and cussing. Then your life should not have that element running rampant through it. But to turn those things into the primary sins of life and elevate that to such a degree and start holding people accountable to our cultural understanding of what is horrible and what isn't, rather than a biblical one, and not leading people to a biblical understanding of grace, 
but rather a biblical, non-biblical way of keeping separate from everybody else. I think all of us have experienced this because we live here. We live in the Bible Belt, and this is the natural inclination of humans. It is weird. Humans look for lasciviousness. They look for excess. They look for lots of pleasurable sin, or they look for a lot of rules and a lot of regulations. It is odd, but sin goes in both those directions. Either rampant, do whatever you want, or let's just tighten everything down and nobody can do anything. And both are wrong. Both are 100% wrong. And in the Gospels, you see Jesus getting right underneath the skin, in particular, of the Pharisees' legalism. Let me just say this real quick, because this is where I'm headed, but let me just say, not all these Pharisees were bad. I know that sounds odd, but not all of them were. Nicodemus is going to become a Christian. The one Jesus speaks to at night, John chapter 3. There's several Pharisees in the book of Acts. They become Christians. They, they're not, they had a root that was good. They wanted a return to holiness. But what happens is people go off the deep end and now they've got prestige and they've got clout and they've got the love and admiration of everybody else. That's something else that happens in religious communities. So now my religious fervor is really tied to the respect I get because I'm so holy. And it has nothing to do with God at all. It has to do with me. And we are all susceptible to this, church. Everybody sitting in here as a Christian is susceptible to what I'm talking about. It is easy to become legalistic. Okay. Jesus is reclining at table with sinners, hated tax collectors. And the disciples are there as well. There's many that followed him. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? I've already explained why they're so frustrated. So Jesus, when he hears it, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is telling the supposedly righteous scribes, I am here specifically for the sick. And he's not talking about physically sick here. He's talking about spiritually sick. I am here for sinners. I am here because I am going to pay the price for their sin. He's not saying that yet. But he's telling them, my mission as the Messiah bringing the kingdom of God is to bring the kingdom to sinners. And how else do I get the sinners? Unless I get around sinners. How else do I do it? This is how I do it. I get around them. This is a proverb. This is, it's, not, it's not a proverb uh, from the book of Proverbs, but it's a proverb that the Pharisees would have been familiar with, and they would have agreed with it what Jesus actually said. Jesus takes their own kind of argumentation and says, it's the sick who need 
a physician, and that's why I'm here. And so he silences their criticism by bringing up something that they themselves would agree with and probably, probably implicit inside of what he said is a little sarcasm and irony that says, uh, yeah, I didn't come for the righteous, which supposedly you are. Because these guys absolutely qualify as sinners because of their legalistic pride. They're just a different kind of sinner. Jesus is not saying, you guys are so righteous, you don't need my salvation. That is not what Jesus is implying. Jesus is saying, I'm coming after the sick and the the spiritually dead. I am coming after those people. How else do I get to them unless I get to them? And there's, there's irony in there in that you too need my ministry because they themselves are not righteous. Okay. Let's talk about what this implies for us. I'm going to have you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. Because there's an interesting, this is one of those interesting truths that requires us to think and requires us to have the Bible close at hand so that we think correctly. So Jesus, what he's doing is he's extending grace on purpose to tax collectors, to sinners, to on purpose demonstrate his love and his mercy towards them as sinners. As as Romans tells us in chapter 5, it says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That idea... This understanding that Jesus died for the sins of the world is really at the baseline of the gospel, right? I mean, we all understand that Jesus died for the sins of sinners. And Jesus, in this story we've read, is on purpose demonstrating that by going to the sinners, Our lives, here's the thing we need to take. So if you're taking notes, you can put down, here's the first thing we need to take out of this. Our lives should be lived like this. It's a missionary mindset towards sinners that are around us. We should have a missionary, merciful mindset to the people we work with, the people we live beside, the the vile... Just picture any sinner that you know. Does anybody know any sinners uh, at work? or at your neighborhood, or in your family, people that are not serving God at all in any capacity. It doesn't matter if they're pagans. It doesn't matter if they're indifferent. It doesn't matter if they're atheists. Wherever they're at on the spectrum, we know those people. We should take from what Jesus did by reclining at their table with them that we should have an on-purpose missionary mindset to the world around us. 
Look at what Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, specifically about this. Verse 9 of chapter 5. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And if you just stop there, you'd be like, that's right. I don't hang out with anybody that does things wrong. Which is why I have a very small friend group. <laughs> Daniel, that is the wrong amen. Verse 10. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Look how easily he just says sexually immoral and then greedy. It's easy to pick out sexual immorality. They had sex before they were married. They, had, they committed adultery. They did something like that. It's easy to pick out sexual immorality. Is it easy to pick out greed? I, actually, I think it probably is. Greedy. Our culture is, we're in, a, we're in a funny world. In America, in American Christianity, we, we have been so blessed and so, pro, I don't know if we can, we have, a, we have a more difficult time discerning it, probably. Um, and swindlers, those are easy to figure out, right? People who cheat others. It's just, he just throw, he's not giving an exhaustive list of sin, He's just giving the idea of sinfulness and sinners or idolaters. That covers just about everything. Anybody that has anything in front of God is an idolater. Since then, now the reason he's, what he's saying is, I'm not meaning that we should uh, not associate with sexually immoral people in the world or greedy people or swindlers or idolaters because, look what he says, since then you would need to go out of the world. You can't get away from these people. They're everywhere. They're called sinners. You can't escape these people. But look at what he does say. This is not our sermon. I just want you to understand Paul's argument. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Those that don't belong to Jesus. I'm not judging them. So what's the implication? He's judging insiders. This is a super uncomfortable passage, right? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Did you know that was in the Bible? Judge not, lest you be judged. That's our favorite, Matthew chapter 7. That's a favorite verse of lots of people. I have a, know a guy who got it tattooed, currently not serving the Lord. Because what people mean by that is, you can't tell me that my sinfulness is sin. And what this is telling me is, the church has a responsibility to tell you that your sinfulness is sin. That is what this is telling me. And not only is it telling me that, it's going a little further, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those that are outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let me give you just a real quick synopsis of what this is saying. This is not our point today, but since obviously I read it, now people are a little freaked out, right? Let's just be honest. You read this, you're like, I didn't know this was in here. 
and this is uncomfortable, and this is, this is in here. What this is saying is, and we couple it with Matthew uh, 18 and several other places, and it's church discipline, which is this. If you call yourself a Christian and persist in unrepentant sin and refuse to repent of it, and I'm going to live the way that I want, the church has a responsibility to come talk to you. That's what this is. I am not talking about the fact that every... This is not talking about every one of you who's committed sin this week, because you did. You had impure thoughts. You had impure motives. You may have just went all the way and did something dumb. Whatever it is you did, that is not what this is a reference to. We ask God for forgiveness, and we grow and we move on. So everybody understands that. If you confess your sin, you are He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that is not what this is a reference to. This is a reference, specifically in chapter 5, to a guy who is having sex with his father's wife, and he refuses to repent of it. In fact, Paul says, this isn't even stuff that the Gentiles are doing. And this is going on in your church, and you're letting him come to church and be a part of your assembly, and you should not be. He's unrepentant in his sin. And that is what this whole thing's about. So does everybody understand where we're coming from? The point of this passage is really that Paul is saying, I'm not telling you not to associate with the sinfulness of the world because there's no way to escape it. You can't escape the sexually immoral and greedy and idolatrous people of the world. You work with them. You buy and sell with them. You live beside them. You can't escape them. That is not what we're trying to do. We're not trying to create a new version of Christian Pharisee. That is not what we're trying to do. God is going to judge those on the outside. We are supposed to be salt and light. The point of what he's saying about the church is that the church does judge those who are inside, and it does it carefully, and it does it in the issues where there are unrepentant sinners, not people who are broken over their sin. That is not what this is about. Not people who are asking God for forgiveness and confessing their sin. That is not what this is about. Church discipline of this kind doesn't happen all the time. It is a rare occurrence when somebody exemplifies a sinful lifestyle that they refuse to repent from. Is everybody clear? Everybody knows what we're talking about? I just want to make sure because I know how the devil will try to play havoc with your mind this week because you committed a sin and you're going to think that you're going to have to get kicked out of the church because you didn't know this was in here. That is not what this means. If you have questions, call me. Okay. The point is you got to live among sinful people. However, turn a couple pages to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're trying to get to an understanding of the way we should live our lives with sinful people all around us to be like Jesus and talk to sinners and know sinners so we can influence them for the gospel. Because in his second letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 6, he says something that almost sounds exactly the opposite of what we just read. Okay? Chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked 
with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial or Satan? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. That's also pretty clear, isn't it? Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, if you've never heard the phrase unequally yoked, it is a reference to two oxen and a yoke. Has everybody seen a yoke that you put on the neck of an oxen? It's this big wooden thing that goes out like this, and the head of one oxen goes here, and the head of the other oxen goes here, and they yoke them together so that they can plow a field. Unequal yoke means there's something wrong in the design or one oxen is way bigger and stronger than the other. What happens when you do that? The stronger oxen is going to drag the weaker one wherever it wants. And the weaker has no choice because it's yoked to this other guy. And if you really just follow the laws of physics, you'll have a field that's plowed in a circle. That's <laughs> what will happen. Uh, because it'll just the one ox will just wind up going the way it's, unless there's somebody that directs it. The imagery is, do not get yourself in a yoked relationship with unbelievers because they will influence you, not the other way. This is why I do not encourage evangelistic dating. Does anybody know what that is? If I date him, I'll change him. Anyway, no you won't. Or if I date her, I'll change her. We won't see you again. That's what that means. Now listen, some of you are like, well, my story is, uh, well, God has a lot of grace and a lot of mercy, but you do not want to willfully and knowingly be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. But this is also true, it depends, and there's always a place for asking questions and asking God for wisdom, but being unequally yoked can mean getting in maybe to a business partnership with somebody who is an unbeliever in such a way that they're going to influence and drive that type of relationship as well. Being unequally yoked means that I should probably not have my best friends are unbelievers that have a position of influence in my life. So how do I put these two things together? Because Jesus reclined at table with sinners. And yet, and Paul backs that up when he says, that I'm not saying you have to go out of the world because if, or, or to not hang out with these people because there's no way to avoid it. And yet, in 2 Corinthians, he tells me, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. So now it sounds like that all the backwoods folks are right. Come out from among them and be separate. Don't talk to them. Don't, don't look at them. Don't even, don't even go to the mall. 
You can order everything online. But wait, don't get on the internet, because it's bad too. Let's just be Amish. That is the solution. And that is actually what the Amish have done. That is their conclusion. That is why they are what they are. And I praise God for the jellies and the bread. But what they've done is they have separated themselves because of these verses and said, we're not going to have anything to do with your modern world. Sometimes I'm tempted to join them. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. There are times I'm like, actually, the Amish are not. Uh, so I get it. I get the feeling that causes you to think that way and feel that way. But there is, I hate to use the word balance, but I'm going to use the word, there is a balance between being unequally yoked together and reclining at table with sinners in a missionary mindset that says, I am going after this person for Christ. There is a difference and a balance between those things. Being unequally yoked together, I believe you can take from these scriptures, is to mean that I am yoking myself up in a relationship with somebody who does not believe in Christ, whether that's a romantic relationship, whether it's a friendship relationship, whether it's a business relationship, anywhere these people become an intimate part of your life and they start dragging you away and it always works that way. You are not Jesus. We can agree on that. Right? And if you spend all of your time with unbelievers in the context of just enjoying the fellowship of unbelievers and spending all your time that way with them in an intimate relationship, they will drag you away. However, it's going to sound like I'm going to say the exact opposite of what I just said. However, you and I need some pagan sinful friends. We, we need them. We need them in a missionary relationship where I am looking to influence those people for Christ. So somehow, we have to discern the difference between being unequally yoked and reclining at table in a missionary way with unbelievers. This is what I think, this is my conclusion. We proclaim the grace of the gospel that is in Christ to the world around us with our words, with our actions, with our lifestyle. I think that is the way that we try to go after the world around us. You have a neighbor who is an atheist or a co-worker or they're uh, in your face about LGBTQ stuff or whatever. There's various scenarios in the world we're living in. Be wonderful to invite them over for dinner and get to know them. That would be a missionary mindset. And do that every once in a while. What would be unequally yoked is dating that person. What would be unequally yoked is getting together every night of the week in such a way that I'm just looking for uh, 
their companionship and what they bring to a relationship, whether it's friendship or romantic or whether it's business or whatever it is. And now I'm putting the missionary part off on the side, but bringing it up whenever it's convenient to say that's what I'm really doing. That is not what you're really doing. Has anybody ever seen this happen? Can I tell you how many times I've seen this happen? Where people become unequally yoked with unbelievers? However, I'm trying to be clear. We've, we've got to have people that we love and show Christ to. And we can't do that if we're Amish hiding in the woods. We have got to be salt and light to the world around us. So we've, we've got to have dinner with sinners. We've got to have them over to our house. We've got to take them to lunch. We've got to look for open doors of opportunity. The difference is there's a line that gets crossed somewhere in there where you go into the unequally yoked. And, and so I'm saying both things so that you're aware that the idea is to be missionaries to the world around us, not to be in relationship unequally yoked like Paul warns about in 2 Corinthians 6. And I think that every one of these scenarios, every friend, every person you know, every acquaintance, every coworker, I think it's going to be different in every scenario. And the Christian has to discern in those relationships when it's went too far. Which is why the church is so important. That's why woven is so important. That's why banded is so important. That's why your friends in the church are so important. So you can say, hey, I'm just wondering. Let me give you an example. I'm just wondering maybe if I'm getting unequally yoked. Let me, let me tell you what's going on. Or the more you talk about this other person, people around you in the church can recognize and say, hey, wait a second, Trevor. How much time are you spending with this guy? He's clearly having an influence on your thoughts. He's having an influence on the way you view the Scripture. Do you see what I'm getting at? There's a, there's a difference. I think we all would like some kind of clear sword to come out of the sky to create a perfect separation that I could give you. I, I don't know how to tell you when you become unequally yoked. It's just we need to be warned and aware that that's, that is a danger. But also, we've got to be warned and aware that we can't become Amish Pharisees that don't have anything to do with the world around us. We must engage with the world around us because that's what Jesus did. That's what we need to be doing. You need to get to know people that don't know Christ because now you've got an open door to speak into their life. I've talked with Kenny on several occasions where he works. These opportunities, they're co-workers. They're not best friends. They're co-workers. And doors open up because you work with these people. How many of you work with people and you get to know them over a period of time and these doors open up? God has got you there on purpose. That's why you're there. That is our purpose in this world is to go out and be salt and light 
by sharing the grace and the love of Jesus. Not judging the sinner like, oh, you, you are just this horrible, horrific person. Well, of course they are. They don't have Jesus. That, do you remember the flavor of what Paul said? I don't judge the outside world. God's going to judge the outside world. The only time any judgment occurs is when they're claiming to be Christians, but not acting like they are. That's the only place the church does any judgment. The real judgment is going to happen when this person dies and doesn't know Jesus. We have a responsibility to go share Christ with them, and you can't do it from a distance, lobbing sin grenades at them, telling them that they're horrible and you want nothing to do with them. Right? Got to get to know some sinners. Just can't be unequally yoked together with them. Is that simple enough? It's sometimes not simple. God did not call us to do little piddly things. We are, even where you work, we are engaged with eternity. Every, everywhere we go. And so I want, I want to keep in my mind this picture of Jesus laughing, eating, and hanging out with sinners, but I also keep in mind that Jesus was the primary influencer there, not the other way around. I'm going to keep in mind that I'm not Him. And I'm going to keep in mind that Jesus is going to be with me as I go to work tomorrow, and as I have friendships with people. I'm also going to keep in mind that I can't go too deep in the friendships with unbelievers that will influence me away from Christ. I don't have a great answer for how do you know when you've went too deep. That's why you need ongoing help, wisdom, counsel from brothers and sisters in Christ and from the Scripture. And the Holy Spirit, too, may very well help lead you there. In fact, that is exactly what He will do. He will help lead you and alert your heart. Okay, you're going too far. Or hey, you're ignoring people. You're, you're becoming Amish. Stop it. Start loving some ugly, sinful people that are diametrically opposed to everything you believe. And there is no greater testimony to the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus than to embrace that person as worthy of the same Savior that saved you. Right? That is what we are supposed to be demonstrating to the world around us. So, that in mind, let's all stand up. We're going to receive communion. So if you did not get your communion element, please go ahead out there in the foyer and get that.
this this meal we take together is the ultimate example of the mercy and grace of God. It is our own purpose remembering that Jesus died for sinners. That we've received His grace. And that we, in an ongoing fashion, are proclaiming His death until He comes. And that that is the point of this meal. We are proclaiming it, and we are proclaiming our ongoing reception of His grace and His mercy. So Lord, we thank You today for the broken body of Christ and the blood of Christ that cleanses from all unrighteousness. I pray that no heart here would be troubled, lest they're living a lifestyle of unrepentant sin. God, if they're, if they're pursuing You and trying and asking You for help and hating their sin, God, that, that person has nothing to fear. So Lord, we thank You for Your grace and Your mercy. We thank You, Lord, it's not by our works and our efforts, it's by Your sacrifice, Your blood, by the power of Your Spirit, helping us and empowering us to live righteously in this age. God, we receive, again, the blessing and the benefit of your sacrifice for us. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Let's take this together. Lord, I ask that you would open doors of opportunity to share the word, to be salt and light to the world around us. God, open relationship opportunities for us to recline at table with sinners. Give us wisdom, God, that we would not be unequally yoked together. Lord, we thank you for it, and we give you glory for it in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Church, you are dismissed.